It's great to be back here again in my local church. We're only just round the corner. And today we're travelling back three and a half thousand years and starting a series in the book of Leviticus. It's my favourite book of the Bible, and you'll probably find that out as we get here. And when I mention the word joy, I don't mean some sort of extravagant, hand-wavy, clappy sort of thing, but joy which is a confidence in God. So with that in mind, uh, please do get to your Bibles in Leviticus, and I'll start with a prayer. Father, thank you for this, your written word, the Bible. Thank you that we can have confidence in it because we know that it talks about you. May the words that I speak, Father, be honouring to you, glorifying to you, be centred around you, and that we may leave here not only knowing that you've heard my words, but that we've heard you speak to us and that your presence will go with us out into our community here in Boscombe. Amen. As I said, this is perhaps my favourite book of the Bible. I call it a book of joy. I like rules and regulations. Uh, in my previous job in the post office, I was an office manager. Part of that job was to write rules and regulations and procedures and make sure other people followed those rules and procedures and regulations. And when we got, we had our own book of Leviticus, as it was, and we also had rules and regulations coming down from head office, so we also had to make sure we followed those rules. But the good thing about rules and regulations is you can always find a way around to bend the rules without breaking them. So to, to bend the rules, you have to know the rules. And as we go through this, you'll see that why, another reason why it's my favourite. Some of the, the words and phrases we commonly use today come straight from the book of Leviticus. The word jubilee, the word scapegoat, come from here. And what husband hasn't offered a guilt offering to his wife at some point? I know I have. And Leviticus has important things to tell us about holiness, sin, service to God, and obedience to God. Perhaps most importantly, it tells about a God who wants to live with his people. We start today, as has been read in Leviticus 9 and 10. Next week we'll go into Leviticus 16, which is probably the centrepiece of the book, if not the Bible itself. And then in our third week, we'll finish by looking at Leviticus 18 to 19. So what is Leviticus all about? You can see what I think are the key verses for this book on the screen behind me. Nope, we're not there. I've gone too far. There we go. The name Leviticus simply means the book of the Levites. The Levites were the tribe of priests in ancient Israel. This is what the New Testament refers to as the law. Therefore, we can see that the book of Leviticus was to be God's guidebook for his nation Israel, showing them how he is to be worshipped, served and obeyed. 
Rules are necessary for any society or community to live by or there would be chaos and anarchy. God is a God of order and he's not a God of chaos and anarchy. And here, humanity's fellowship with God is through sacrifice and obedience to reflect God's holiness. Dealing with sin and disobedience is secured through sacrifice. Therefore, the book of Leviticus is preparing the way for the principle of the once and for all atonement that Jesus secured for humanity on the cross. More about that next week. And if you were to simply sum up the book of Leviticus in two statements, it would be, love God and love your neighbour as yourself. And here in Leviticus 9 and 10, Let's witness together a scene of great and exuberant joy. The first seven chapters of Leviticus talk about the different offerings and sacrifices that Israel were to make to God. Then in chapter 8, we see the beginning of the priesthood and the joyful work of Aaron and the priests. Their main role as priests was to act as mediators between a holy God and the people of Israel, particularly in the role of making those offerings and sacrifices that have already been talked about. In fact, these priests were the ultimate multitaskers. They were equally adept as butchers, doctors, teachers, quality assessors and public health inspectors. And the passage we have in front of us today shows the culmination of this priestly ordination. Israel was a nation chosen by God, set apart to be God's people, and they were to be a shining light of God's glory to the world around them. Ever since Genesis 12 and the covenant that God made with Abraham, God said to Israel, I will make you a great nation. I will be your God and you will be my people. Israel were to be a light to all the nations set apart by God for God in this world. The rules and laws of Leviticus were there so that other nations and people could see that the nation of Israel was entirely different to them in all manner of life and ways. However, Israel, God's treasured and precious people, stubbornly refused to be a nation of royal priests. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 19. Instead, they preferred to be represented by Marion, Aaron and Moses. So Moses and Aaron alone have gone into the tent of meeting or tabernacle to meet with God. This is where Moses and Arion would meet with the Lord during their travels to the promised land. And the whole nation is waiting for them to come out, waiting expectantly. So out from the tent of meeting, Moses and Aaron come. Aaron gives a blessing to the people and God's glory appears to the nation. Wow! That must have been some blessing Aaron gave, eh? 
Whatever his words were in verse 24, they were words that invocated almighty God's power, presence and peace to be with and upon his people. No wonder that people fell on the ground with their noses in the dirt as an act of joyful worship and praise to God. The burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar were consumed in a great fire emanating from a manifestation of the glory of God. So amazing was this sight that a tremendous wave of exuberant joy overcame the people and they all fell onto the floor with their face in the ground and their noses inhaling the dirt. Wow! A mixture of amazement, surprise and reverent fear. Would you worship like that? That must have been a sight to behold. Falling face forward was a characteristic method of showing total surrender and submission to a king or master at that time. And here it's adopted by the ancient Israelites as symbolic surrender to their God. A God who is infinite, almighty, majestic, glorious and holy, being worshipped by his people. So there's tremendous joy in the nation of Israel. And this is evident in their spontaneous act of submissive, voluntary worship and expression of thanks to their almighty God. Moses and Aaron had followed God's guidelines obediently, And the nation's true joy was in evidence, was it not? Not just joy as an emotion, but true joy as evidenced through sacrifice, praise and testimony. Now it would be very nice to stop there, wouldn't it? However, the story continues. And the Bible is an honest book. Just as the celebrations were concluding and the priests were taking up their sacred role, oops, something happens. Leviticus 10. Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, the high priest, start their duties disobediently. They take their pans, they fill fill the pans with hot coals from a fire, They place aromatic incense on the coals and offer this to God as an act of worship. And the fire from the glory of the Lord comes out, engulfs them and they die. What happened? They hadn't followed the strict guidelines as given by the Lord and had therefore been disobedient and violated all the safety instructions given to them. Strict regulations were required to be followed by humans to be in and work within God's holy presence. How different can these two scenes be? The juxtaposition between them. In the first passage, fire represented God's presence and spoke of his love, his warmth, his purity and blessing upon his people. Here in the second passage, The fire represents a different aspect of God's holy presence through his active holiness and therefore danger and judgment. Uwe Nadab and Abihu, they were Aaron's uh, eldest sons and they had received a privileged upbringing. 
from close quarters. They had, had observed a God who is at work. When Moses went up Mount Sinai to speak with God and receive the stone tablets, which had the Ten Commandments upon them, they were there. They had just spent the previous week in training for their jobs as priests in service to God. No doubt they had witnessed at close quarters the fire we see in Leviticus 9 verse 24. Yet in spite of all of this, they did what was contrary to the guidelines given them. They were disobedient. Their sin consisted of three fatal offences. They had used alcohol, they had made their own fire, and they had entered the most holy place. Each of these actions alone could have cost them their lives. We don't know why they did it. It could have been pride, jealousy, or impatience that led them to disobey all the guidelines. Or in the light of 10 verse 8, perhaps it was too much wine. It may well be that they were caught up in an excitable fever, as we all are prone to do at some time. An excitable fever of a, a joyful occasion, and they wanted joy like a drug. Perhaps they thought they were doing God a, a great big favour by zealously embracing their roles as priests, and wanting to offer as many sacrifices as they could. We will never know. But we do know, though, that what may have seemed right to them most certainly was not right to God. We do know that regardless of their reason for doing so, they actively disobeyed against God. They chose to do it. Not only was it a fragrant disobedience with the incense, but it was also a flagrant disobedience. In offering a strange or unauthorised fire, they had disregarded God's instructions for the timing, place and manner of worship. They had been set apart and dedicated to a life of serving God and his people and had now paid the ultimate consequence for their disobedience. Their disobedience is referred to again in Leviticus 16 in the regulations for the annual Day of Atonement, which we will look at next week. Regulations probably given to ensure that this never happened again. You can be sure that Aaron the high priest would make sure that it would happen again, wouldn't you? Aaron, their father, was struck silent and stunned. Wouldn't you be? He had seen at first hand that in a life of true joy, God requires obedience over sacrifice. Aaron and his remaining sons were not to mourn or appear to be sorrowful. And this was to signify the seriousness of Nadab and Abihu's disobedience. And to us today in the 21st century, the soft 21st century, this may seem a bit harsh. But Aaron and his remaining sons were to prioritise service to God over commitment to family. Aaron and his other sons had to remain engaged in priestly duties and responsibilities. Other members of the family, however, were allowed to mourn. And the commentators that I read in uh, 
people much cleverer than I, that I read in preparation, remarked about inappropriate worship as the main lesson to learn from this incident. However, as they, while there is a lesson there certainly to learn about inappropriate worship, I think that there's a greater lesson for us today which is clearly visible, which these guys don't even mention. More about that soon. But let's look now at God firstly. Today, in the 21st century, we've got a problem. We're quite comfortable with a God of love, peace, joy and kindness. And if that is our limit on the vision of God, then may I suggest that our vision and opinion of God is too small. Perhaps our God is too nice and too comfy, cosy. And yet a problem seemingly remains. How on earth can a God of love, peace, gentleness, kindness and joy act like this against two of his dedicated servants? Is that not a God who is at odds with himself? And the first thing that we can say here about God is that while he is most assuredly a God of love, kindness, joy and peace, he is also a God of holiness and judgment, a God who judges. It's plainly evident from the passage and it's missing in a lot of the 21st century church. We need to acknowledge him as this great and tremendous lover, which he is, but also as a terrifying judge. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The writer of the book of Hebrews reminds us that it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, who is a consuming fire. Perhaps the writer of the Hebrews was looking back on this passage when he wrote that. And we need to remember that God requires obedience over sacrifice. Love involves judging and making judgment, particularly at traffic lights. You don't want to go through a red light. And the judgment of God is unbiased. God shows no favoritism and he is always just and right. It reflects his mercy so that nobody can claim that God is unfair. But God is not merely a God of peace, mercy, joy and love, but also, as we have seen, he's a holy God who judges and administers justice impartially in accordance with his mercy, peace and love. And not only is he a God who judges, but he's also a God who has great wrath. It is an essential, permanent, an indelible part of his character. Again, as 21st century people, we don't like to mention it, do we? His wrath may be slow to burn, but it is still anger and wrath. The holiness of God requires that he punish sin through his wrath. God cannot abide sin and disobedience. 
He is a holy and righteous God. What sort of God would he have been if he had not done what he did to those two lads? What if he had said, well, that's okay, lads. You'll get it right next time, won't you? Now, I mean, if God had said that, then he would most certainly be seen to be a capricious, unjust, fickle and hostile being. As I said, it's not a popular subject these days in our churches. Most churches mumble when it comes to Bible passages such as this. And while most of our society and indeed parts of our church view God as a doddery, benevolent being, sitting benignly in the sky on his rocking chair and mildly tutting when people disobey his commands. But God is not a benevolent grandfather figure sitting up on a rocking chair. And neither is his wrath or anger unwarranted, immoral, cruel, fickle, spiteful or capricious. God's wrath is always to administer and meet out a divine, loving justice which corresponds to God's innate and essential characteristics and attributes of light, perfection and holiness. That's the picture given by all the writers of the Bible. And when we speak of a God in human terms, whether that is being a wrathful judge or a tremendous lover, it reflects the imperfect limitations of our humanity, does it not? And secondly, God's honour was at stake. He's both zealous and jealous for his honour and for his name. That's evident throughout the scriptures. He can only act within the confine of his own characteristics and attributes. He must always work out of his immutable holiness. God was passionate about living at the centre of his people and there was no way he could allow renegade priests to disobediently defile his dwelling place. Nadab and Abihu were punished because they worked in his immediate presence as illustrated by verse 3. If God had not punished them, then that would have made God out to be a hypocrite, a liar, acting contrary to his essential nature. He would have been seen as a God who was impotent and seemingly have multiple personality issues. And this story illustrates that Nadab and Abihu had to serve as an example, which is why we have the story. And thirdly, Nadab and Abihu broke the guidelines given by God on how to enter his presence. They took the wrong fire, they went at the wrong time, and they were ill-prepared for such an occasion. They entered a place of God's holy presence in a sinful, disobedient state. People full of sin can never enter into a place where God resides because God is uniquely holy, sinless and perfect without fault or defect. Nadab and Abihu chose for whatever reason to break God's guidelines in how and where and when to offer a sacrifice. There's no indication, however, from the biblical test that they were eternally separated from God at their death as in judgment of their sins. 
but rather it seems they were judged according to what uh, they did with their abilities, talents and gifting as ministers in his servants. And so, what's all this got to do with us today some three and a half thousand years later? Over and over and over again as you read the Old Testament, we see that the nation of Israel were to be a people of service separated out for God, by God, to be his light and representation to all the other nations. Under the terms of the covenant that God had made with Moses, that was the core of God's agreement with them. It commenced with the stipulation, Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. This covenant was with the nation of Israel in order that those who believed God's earlier promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 could know how to live a life worthy of being God's people. To live a life worthy of being God's people. To live a life relating socially to God and to other people. It was also to show how humanity could approach God on God's terms alone and not on their own conditions. God was and is a perfect and holy God. His people Israel were to be a holy and separated people of service and to reflect God's glory and greatness to the other nations. And this covenant was only ever going to be in place until the Messiah would come and made the perfect sacrifice. All the Old Testament covenants pointed towards the time when the Saviour Messiah would come. God himself would come to save his people. The Mosaic Covenant was never meant as a means towards salvation. It was given that they could realise the helplessness of their own efforts to save themselves and that they needed God's help. One day there would be a new covenant between God and humanity and this Mosaic Covenant would be fulfilled. And that Messiah is the God-man that we know as Jesus. Wow. So what's this new covenant? And there are four primary features to this new covenant. God will write his law on the hearts of his people. God will be their God and we will be his people. God will live within people, as was said earlier, through the Holy Spirit, and they'll be led by him and guided by him. And all of our sins will be forgiven and removed eternally. Now, if that doesn't make you go, wow, nothing will. Wow! Obviously, it won't make you go, wow, because you didn't refund. And this new covenant is and was and sealed only through the perfect sacrifice of the God-man Jesus on the cross. More about that next week. His blood ensures the truth of this new covenant. His death pays the penalties for the sins of all people who choose to say yes to God and follow him. 
This new covenant finalises what the cold covenant, the covenant with Moses, could only point forwards to. The follower of God engaged in a dynamic relationship of joy with a God who loves them. If that doesn't make you go well, then nothing will. Oh, by the way, if I get excited, I start talking quicker. And I have been known to get up to about 220 words a minute. So you have to slow me down if you can't understand me. And because of this new covenant, we no longer have to follow the rules, the laws and regulations of the book of Leviticus. Furthermore, no longer would human priests be needed in order to mediate between God and humans. Why? Because the man, the God-man we know is Jesus Christ, the full, visible manifestation of God, would fulfil that role as mediator and all people would be able to have access to God through him. Jesus is our high priest. Amazing stuff. You and I have instant access to Almighty God. We can approach God's throne of grace with confidence and assurance because of the work of our great high priest Jesus on the cross. God no longer dwells in a tent of meeting, the tabernacle or a temple made of stone. He now lives within us, lives within each believer. Immediate access, guaranteed. Amazing. And yet how often do we forget that? How often do we not avail ourselves? Of course, as John Stott used to say, before you come in praise, you should also come in penance. Hence our act, saying the confession earlier. It's amazing. And it's more than all of that because you and I, if we are Christians, are also royal priests in this new covenant between God and humanity. That's what we are. We too are called into a joyful life of obedient service of and to God. We are called to live lives which are worthy of being called children of God. More about that in two weeks. But how do we serve? And now for something we look back together on April 29th in Romans chapter 12. So hopefully I've made it so we don't go over too much similar ground together. When we serve and minister, God's honour is released. Did you realise that? Amazing. Just as it was for Aaron and the Old Testament priesthood. And this is done because... Uh, Service is to show the beauty and the glory and the wonder of God to others. God is both zealous and jealous for his glory and for his honour to be upheld. Nadab and Abihu could testify to that, I'm sure. As Christians, as part of our life of true joy, we are called to serve and minister. Each of us who would call ourselves Christian are to serve and minister in some way to all people without bias or prejudice in obedience to Almighty God. We are called to exhibit 
and show our true joy of joyous, obedient service to Jehovah God. Each of us here today is called to perform a unique, serving and ministerial function in the church. And you know what I call the church? The church is God's orchestra of joy, just as Aaron and his family were. Showing love, serving and giving to others are a practical outworking of our joyful obedience to God. And because we have God the Holy Spirit living within us, we are not left alone to serve in our own power. If we were to serve in our own power, then we would most certainly fail. God himself has lovingly equipped all those who follow him to serve. God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside each believer and has endowed each person with gifts, talents and abilities for that purpose. Service of God and to God and to show God to other people. And that is so that the whole church is built up and that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. God wants you and I to be in active service, lifelong service, hallmarked by loving obedience to him, which reflects our joyful dedication to him, to his praise, honour and glory. Wow! So in what way has God called you to serve obediently? And finally, just as God's judgment was upon Nadab and Abihu, the Bible also tells us that all those who follow Jesus will be judged according to what they have done, with what God has given them. However, this judgment is different. It will not be a condemnatory judgment as it was for Nadab and Abihu. If we who are here today have accepted God's free offer of salvation by grace alone, through Jesus Christ alone, then we are declared right with God and in a joyous relationship with him. Of our sinfulness and our sinful nature, we have been set free and been declared innocent before Almighty God. Again, it's amazing more about that next week. You might like to read Leviticus 16 for yourself in the coming week in preparation. Our belief and our faith in Almighty God are to be visibly manifested through our joyful, obedient service of and to God. Can that be said of you? As followers of Jesus Christ, God will ask you and I to give an account of ourselves. That passage, passage we read from 1 Corinthians refers to it. The quality of our work will be tested and our motives exposed. Either we did things for God's glory, or we did them for our own glory or for other reasons. We, each of us, will have to give an account of the opportunities and abilities entrusted to us as instruments in the church. And what is the church? It's God's orchestra of joy. It'd be too late then to wish we'd been more faithful, 
more zealous, more careful in our walk and witness? How's your obedient service to God going? And we're almost finished, fear not. First of all, we saw in this amazing scene after Moses and Aaron's meeting with God and an act of obedience by Aaron. A scene of adoring worship by his orchestra of joy. Then we saw together a holy God judging Nadab and Abihu because of their deliberate act of disobedience. And then we looked briefly at how this applies to ourselves in what we call the new covenant. And then we saw together for those of us who would call ourselves Christian that the Bible is very clear. We are all called to lovingly and obediently serve God and other people in some capacity. A life of true joy is seen in obedient service to the glory of God the Father through God the Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of God the Holy Spirit who lives within you. The church is to be God's orchestra of joy to a world that needs the true joy only God can provide through God's through Jesus Christ alone. That's the message for Boscombe that we're to take to them. And just as ancient Israel were set apart for God as a light to the nations, so too we are the church. We are to live such lives of obedient love to God, showing that love to others so that people will ask us for the reason, for the hope that we have. More about that over the next two weeks. As Christians, we're called to live lives worthy of Jesus Christ. And today, if any of us are engaging in either intentional or unintentional acts of disobedience towards God in any capacity, then we need to turn our life around to one of utter obedience to the God we profess to follow. Ask for forgiveness from Almighty God and he will forgive you from his wellsprings of love, grace, justice and mercy. And then we don't go do that act of disobedience again. God will not condemn us, but he may discipline or chastise us as children in order to get us back on the path with him. I get my ears clipped by God regularly. Perhaps that's just the way he deals with me. Our God challenges us in our comforts and comforts us in our challenges. As a Christian, you have God, the Holy Spirit, living within you as a seal of your salvation. Your body is the temple where God now resides. You can't hide from him, so you may as well choose to be obedient to him in a life of joyful service, exhibiting that true joy and the hope that you have for him and in him. Just as joy followed Moses and Aaron's obedience in Leviticus 9, so too can it be for those of us who are willing to lovingly serve obediently. The church is a light of God into Boscombe. Boscombe's orchestra of joy. Wow. And because of the life, death 
and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can enter God's holy presence. There's no other way to God except through Jesus Christ and him alone. As the writer of Hebrew reminds us, and I finish with this, we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And that's the message we take out from here. Let's pray. O Holy God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, once again we thank you for your written word. Thank you for the freedom that we have in this country to meet, to discuss, to disagree and agree. And may we go from here willing to serve you and you alone. For we know, O oh God, that we can't serve two masters. Help us and encourage us to serve you and you alone. And may we go from here, O oh God, knowing that your presence is with us and within us, and give people a reason to ask us for the hope that we have in you. And we ask this, Father, through the the name of your dear Son, Jesus, our Saviour, and in the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, empowers us, guides us, corrects us, and loves us. Amen.